John chapter 1, and we're going to read verses uh, 43 through 51 through the end of the chapter. The next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. He found Philip and told him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, a hometown of Andrew, the the hometown of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and so did the prophets. Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathanael asked him. Come and see, Philip answered. Then Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said about him, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you, Jesus answered. Rabbi, Nathanael replied, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus responded to him, do you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? You're going to see greater things than this. Then he said, I truly, I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. This is God's scripture. May he bless our reading of it this morning. You may be seated. So this narrative, I love this narrative. There are so many great things about this narrative. And in fact, I just sat with it devotionally early on in the week. And, um, and, and it, there was so much comfort of just some of the phrases that jumped out uh, toward me. But this morning, rather than a devotional perspective, I want to take a moment and I want us to dig into the text just a little bit. This is one of those important texts for us to understand the Jesus that we're worshiping, the Jesus that we're talking about, the Jesus that John is longing to uh, introduce and to promote and to help us understand in the writing of his gospel. And so therefore, of all the things that we could talk about in this verse, all the beautiful principles that are there, I want to spend our time this morning looking at the three titles that are uttered about Jesus in this passage, which is Son of God, King of Israel, and Son of Man. Son of God, King of Israel, and Son of Man. These are three phrases that come out in reference to Jesus. And what I want us to do is to take a moment to respect their story because there are some implications of these titles that we can't fully appreciate if we simply read it from our context without appreciating any of the background content leading up to these proclamations. And in particular, the way in which these titles find their own origins in the promises of the Old Testament. As, as I think Andrew says to Nathaniel, we, we, we found the one that Moses wrote about in the law and that the prophets were talking about. So these ideas, these, these titles for Jesus and their implications are rooted in the, the uh, Jewish scriptures, which becomes the foundation of the Jewish hope. And as we will see as the story goes on, a Jewish hope that also included a Jewish misunderstanding. Because ultimately there was a myopic view of the God that was being presented in those scriptures. And Jesus came to correct that and to expand the universal nature of the hope and the promises that are contained partly in those titles for Jesus. So let's take a look at them and we're going to take the first two together because as you're going to see oftentimes in the Jewish scriptures these two titles are connected within the same passages. Jewish scriptures or the Old Testament or the Old Covenant scriptures, whichever you prefer. So we'll take a look at first this phrase that comes off the lips of Nathaniel himself. 
son of God and king of Israel. Now, first and foremost, when we see Nathaniel, a first century Jew, looking for the hope of Israel, clearly in conversation with his peers about the hope of Israel, uh, we, when he says, you in verse 49, Rabbi, you are the son of God, you are the king of Israel, loaded into that statement would have been something like, you are the long-awaited Jewish Messiah who will deliver Israel and establish God's kingdom rule over all the nations of the earth. Now, Nathaniel believed, and what he believed was accurate, but he didn't believe enough. Nathaniel's understanding, as we're going to see, that understanding would have been interpreted primarily, um, primarily, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, nationalistically. It would have had to do with his country, his countrymen, his, his, his ethnic background, his religious background, his religious culture would have been loaded into that. And, and the, the challenge that we're going to see that's, that's worked out among the uh, disciples throughout the Jesus narrative is wrapping their head around looking for a physical domineering kingdom modeled after the kingdoms of the world. And Jesus came to reveal that is not the nature of my kingdom. My kingdom cannot be seen. It can only be manifested. You're not waiting. It's actually already here because it already exists within you. But my kingdom does not operate off of the systems of the kingdom of men. In fact, it's just the opposite. Where privilege is given in order to disperse service among those who are less privileged. It is not an intention to build up to the top to amass more for oneself. So Jesus has a kingdom that is a reversal of the kingdom that they would have been thinking about. So let's look at that hope. So Jesus, so, is, so Nathan would have been thinking, that was the time. You're the Jewish Messiah. You're the one who would deliver Israel, and you'll establish God's kingdom over the nations of the earth. Partly true, but his understanding of it was incomplete. Both the terms son of God and king of Israel refer to the first century understanding of Israel's Messiah. The Jewish hope rooted in these titles is chronicled in the Jewish scriptures or Old Testament or Old Covenant scriptures. So before we jump into those, because you're going to read them and you're going to read some of them going, well, this passage doesn't seem to apply to a mere mortal. And yet, there are aspects of this passage that seem to only apply to a mortal. How, how are you reading this as a messianic prophecy? And so, just quick two minutes. You, you honestly will do much better on YouTube or Google this afternoon if you want to dive into this more deeply. But it is a very simple, basic hermeneutical principle, which is hermeneutics is the science of interpreting text. So in this case, the science of interpreting the scripture, and it's known as type and antitype. And in type and antitype, what we see in the Old Testament might be a prophetic utterance that has some relevance to the immediate context. However, it is spoken of in such a way that the, revel the relevance to the immediate context, it seems to go well beyond that. And so what we see in these are these prophecies that, again, have an immediate contextual application, but they have a fuller fulfillment in the coming of Christ. So in the prophecy, there is a type of Christ. The anti-type is Christ himself, not anti-Christ, anti-type. So it might be easier to say, I prefer the language of um, type and fulfillment. 
So we have a type in the prophetic utterance, and then we have the ultimate fulfillment in the coming of Christ. And the New Testament writers are going to be utilizing this hermeneutical principle throughout their own writings as well. Uh, so much so that the Apostle Paul will go on to say that all those promises, and he's talking the ones about the ones that were given to geopolitical Israel in the Old Testament, what he says is all those promises are yes and amen in Christ. And so they see that ultimate fulfillment in Christ. And so we might look at the story of Moses or Joseph and see something of the Jesus story. And we can say, Joseph is a type of Christ. Moses is a type of Christ. We look at elements in the life of David and we see David is a type of Christ. And in Solomon, Solomon is a type of Christ. Even Israel itself, you know, whenever the prophets are talking about Israel's origin and they say, I've called my son out of Egypt. Remember that? And yet what does Luke do? He positions the, 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 the messianic family in Egypt and then employs that prophecy that is about ancient Israel and says, and thus was, was it fulfilled out of Egypt, I've called my son. Speaking of Jesus, that's the kind of the principle of type and fulfillment that we're going to be looking at in some of these passages. So, the, so, so one of the ones that, that, that is very powerful and, and would have been a deep-seated hope in the Jewish consciousness is found in 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, verses 12 through 14. And you'll see it in here. There are some things talking about Solomon, but some things that go well beyond the context of Solomon. And so this is when the prophet is speaking to David and he says, when your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, and it, I'm sorry, these aren't on the overhead because there were so many of them, but they are all printed in your notes. Or of course, you could always flip open your Bible and look at them if you want to do that. It's something people used to do two years ago. Um, uh, 2 Samuel 12 through 14. When, you, when your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name. Now, physically in the history of Israel, who is the king that built the house for Yahweh, Solomon. So, so in this immediate context, there's talking about Solomon, but then the word goes, then the prophecy goes well beyond just Solomon. Uh, he is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with the rod of men and blows from mortals. So there's a lot we could, const we could talk about type and anti-type, or type and fulfillment in this would make for a great coffee conversation because, because as we look at those parallels and we think about the fact that the, the prophet is using the example in history of the building of the temple, but what we see ultimately is that Jesus is the one who builds the dwelling of God. And where is the ultimate dwelling of God? Within humanity. This is why the apostles celebrate. Your hope of glory is what? 
Christ in you. Thank you very much, Sister Summer. Uh, Christ in you is your hope of glory because the ultimate temple of God will be us. It will be humanity. And that's part of what's going into this narrative of the incarnation that we are studying throughout the book of John because John starts so powerfully with emphasizing the reality of that incarnation. In fact, Luke is going to start pulling from some of this imagery whenever the uh, birth announcements are made about Christ. So for example, in Luke 32 through 33, we read, he will be great and will be called son of the most high and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. This is a direct reference. Luke is pulling from what is referenced in 2 Samuel 7, pulling that out and applying it to the ultimate fulfillment, which is Christ, who is the heir of the throne of David, and it is his kingdom which will not end. It will last forever. In fact, the way Isaiah prophesies it, and we'll probably read it during Advent, is of the increase of his government, there will be no end. Now notice, Isaiah doesn't celebrate of his government there will be no end. That's not what he says. What is he actually celebrating? The increase, that the increase will expand and continue and continue age upon age upon age. Of the increase of that government, there will be no end. Again, in a few verses later in Luke 135, the angel replied to her, being Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the one to be born will be called the Son of God. Again, reference to the fact in, in 2 Samuel 7, 14, I will be his father and he will be my son. The angel picks up on that in these birth announcements to, to emphasize that Jesus is the great fulfillment of the Jewish hope. And then the new revelation will be, in the fullness of time, it will be revealed, Jesus is the foundation of humanity's hope. Because in the scripture, you have the Jewish people, and then you have the Gentiles. What that means is the Jewish people and everybody else, including all of us that sit in, gathered in this room this morning. So we see in other passages in the Old Testament an overt connection between these titles for uh, the Son of God and King of Israel and the Messiah. They're linked together in certain passages. We're going to look at just one. It's found in Psalm 2, verses 2 through 7. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one, which would have been a reference to the title Messiah or Christ. They take their stand against the Lord and his anointed one. Let's tear off their chains and throw off and throw their ropes off of us. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Justification for laughter and sarcasm right there. Um, the one in throne of heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. Then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies him in, them in his wrath. I have installed my king on Zion, 
my holy mountain. I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. I'm sorry, I just heard Darth Vader in the back of my mind whenever I said that. So, so I, I wish to be delivered from this junior high part of my brain, but it, it causes me problems sometimes. Anyway, you are my son and I am your father. Um, but, but you see there that connection, Messiah, King of Israel, Son of God, Messiah, King of Israel, Son of God, these are all titles, which this is all the history that's bound up in the hope in Nathaniel's heart in verse 49 when he says, you are the Son of God, you are the King of Israel. Now, this becomes very important, particularly for those of you who I've had several conversations this, this year of this particular question. Why does the church call Jesus God when, never, when Jesus never called himself God? Well, if you're talking about the literal words in red, there's something to that. If you refuse to honor basic principles of interpretation. But if we read the scripture within its context, and interpret it with the language that it's using, you will in fact that Jesus did claim equality with God. In fact, this is a very important point for us to consider because it is this point precisely that is one of the primary reasons why the religious establishment could justify the execution of Jesus. The primary argument that they could bring before the people was Jesus' claim to deity. And you'll see it throughout some of the narratives. Let's just look for a, at a few for time's sake this morning. John 5, 18. This, this, this is why the Jews began trying all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father. Look at this making himself equal to God. Now, this is a doctrinal portion of the sermon, but I want you to see this has more implications than just for dogma and history. So let's rest with this and let's take the Jesus that we see in John, who is making himself to be equal to God. Again, if we move a few chapters later in John 8, verses 57 through 59, the Jews replied, you aren't 50 years old yet, and you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, before Abraham was, I am. Look at the response. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus was hidden and went out of the temple. Now, to an English reader in 2023, we might be like, why so sensitive? What's the big deal? But to the Jewish audience of the first century who would have probably known their scriptures more than the average Christian knows his or her scriptures in contemporary times, they would have been steeped in this narrative and they knew exactly what Jesus was doing. He was quoting for himself the name of God found in Exodus 3.14. God replied to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me. And so when Jesus says that, 
Yes, I, I knew Abraham. In fact, I'll give you one better. I existed before Abraham. In fact, in time, if you'll listen to this little young kid's gospel that he'll eventually write, you'll learn that through me was Abraham created. So before Abraham, I am. So he is emphasizing that he is present as more than a nationalistic Messiah. He is present as the Messiah of the world who because he is not simply a great teacher, a great philosopher, a great gift from God, he is the presence of God in the flesh. This is what John celebrates in his prologue, and this is what Jesus claims in, uh, as he's interacting with the audience of the first century. So, that's a background to Son of God and King of Israel. But then there's another title given, and this is on the lips of Jesus himself, verse 51. Then he said, truly I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is so cool. This is one of the, the more nerdy, uh, exciting uh, examples of type and antitype because I mentioned before that we might say that, that Joseph and Moses and David and Solomon are a type, but that Jesus is fulfillment. So that we, we might say something like, Jesus is the better Joseph. Jesus is the better Moses. Jesus is the better David. Jesus is the a better Solomon. And one of my favorites is when you look at that passage of the elder brother in the story of the prodigal son, and the elder brother can't rejoice in the bringing home of the younger brother. But my friends, we have a better elder brother. Jesus is a better elder brother. He doesn't stay out, of the, out in the field filled with envy and jealousy and self-pity. He joins the party. He becomes the party whenever we're brought home. So, but there's also inanimate objects that, serves as, as, that, that can serve as a type of Christ. You might say there's a way of understanding the story of Noah's ark and the flood in such a way that we would see the ark itself as a type of Christ. And if you're interested in that, buy me a Reuben and we'll go more into it. Or Google, it's cheaper. Um, uh, but in this imagery that Jesus himself using, uses is what we see is he's using a metaphor that is steeped in the history of the Jewish people. Jesus is claiming that he is Jacob's ladder, which is a beautiful mystery, a story told in the Old Testament. In fact, we have time. Let's go there. Genesis 28, verses 12 through 16. And he dreamed, talking about Jacob, a stairway was set on the ground with its top reaching the sky. And here's our, here's our connection phrase. And God's angels were going up and down on it. The Lord was standing there beside him saying, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, the God of Isaac. I will give you and your offspring the land on which you are lying. Your offspring will be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out toward the west, the east, the north, and the south. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you and your offspring. Look, I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go. I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. When Jacob awoke from his sleep, he said, Surely the Lord 
is in this place and I did not know it. And I think the text goes on to say that he named the place Bethel. Why? Because God's here. So Jacob sees in this dream, in the dream, it's a physical ladder and angels are going up and down and the ladder is, is obviously the, the symbol of the angels means the beings of heaven are traveling down on this ladder. But where is the ladder standing? It's standing securely on earth. And so this ladder then becomes this meeting place, this joining together of heaven and earth. And Jacob recognizes it and he says, I'm calling this place Bethel because that dream, I know what it means. It means that God is here. So where is God? Just in that geographical location called Bethel? No, where God was is right there at that ladder where the angels were ascending and descending. And Jesus himself says, I'm that ladder. You, in fact, are going to see the angels ascending and descending. It's a powerful metaphor, my friends, because we see that Jesus is Jacob's ladder. What does that mean? I'm glad you asked. He is the meeting place of heaven and earth. He is the unity or the union of the human and the divine. This is where this is not just a literature lesson in metaphor and types. This is where it goes beyond a religious history lesson, lesson of one of the stories of the ancients of Israel. This is where it enters into from their sto- his story, their story, to our story. Because it reminds us that what this incarnation is all about is the celebration that Jesus is the unification of all things. He is the meeting place of the human and the divine. He is Jacob's ladder. Now, this is really crystal clearly seen in both the metaphors and in our theology, but let's take a moment to wrestle with the implications of that revelation. Jesus is the meeting place of heaven and earth. The question is now, where is Jesus? Where is he? He is in you, the hope of glory. Remember Colossians? Colossians 1, in fact, celebrate. He's not only in you, everything is in him. Because the him and Colossians celebrate, in him all things hold together. If we're looking for the location of Christ, we simply bow our heads and stare to our chest because he's peeled them back and he stepped right into our chest. That's what Paul celebrates. He is in you as the hope of glory. If the body of Christ is where we see the union of the human and the divine, what does that reveal about our purpose? What does that reveal about your purpose as you move from our story to my story? It means that we are called to display the unity of the human and the divine by the way we live and relate to the world. 
This is our mission. This is how we collectively and as individuals understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus and a disciple of Christ. It means embracing the purpose of the new identity that we have been given through our eyes graciously being opened up to the history, to the mystery that was hidden for the ages, which is this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. We defy the value system of the world of men by living an alternative story. Now that last phrase is important. We do not defy it and transform the world and we do not occupy a place of redemptive reconciliation and and restoration simply by talking about the story. That will not do it. In fact, we will just create more enemies by elevating our story above their story. That that's not just a spiritual principle. Go to the Google and read about what debates and ridicule of other people's belief system does for them, which is why it's shocking to me we celebrate on YouTube and social media so-called Christian apologists that are there in a spirit of antichrist mocking those who don't agree with their belief system mocking their values, mocking their stories, mocking their histories, and all they are doing is driving those people further away from Christ. It will never, talking about the story that you believe will not be effective, but a man or a woman who lives an alternative story will change the world. And history has proven that to us time and time again. My friends, we are bearers of a revelation, not a threat. We are bearers of a revelation, not a threat to unbelievers. We bear a revelation, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And we are the ones who are lovingly announcing what God in Christ has done to remove any perceived barrier to his love and to his mercy. That's what it means to evangelize, not guilting people into joining your church, but announcing this beautiful news that this revelation has altered the story that I'm living because I've lived into the revelation that Christ is in me and that God in Christ has done everything to remove any perceived barrier to his love and to his mercy and to his forgiveness. We are called to serve, to reveal, and to answer. And in fact, what are we called to answer? And this is an important question. You can, I didn't put the reference in. Go to the Google and look in somewhere. It's somewhere in Peter. And, and, and what we'll find out is this. Peter assumes that we'll live in such a way that people will ask about our hope. That's the invitation to share your faith. Not going and accosting them about their beliefs. I did evangelism like that a long time. Never won any converts, but I had really good stories to tell at youth group about people almost beat me up because I was suffering for Jesus. When in time, the Holy Spirit gently said, no, Artie, you were suffering because you were a jerk. Not, Not for me. Because I didn't understand. I thought compelling people to acknowledge my belief system was the work of evangelism. When in reality, It's simply 
one fellow dancer inviting someone else into the dance of God's grace and mercy. That's what we do for evangelism. And we wait until we're asked. And Peter says, be ready to give an answer for the hope that is within you. That part about be ready to give an answer was skipped in all my evangelism training. I don't need you to ask me. I'm just going to come tell you. But we're called to serve, to reveal, and to answer for our hope. We are not required to compel belief. The strength of our witness is a call to wonder, not a threat rooted in fear. Evangelisms and spiritualities of fear will never work because it works against the goal of God's love, which is, in fact, to cast out fear. If we fear, we have not been perfected in love because love casts out fear. Religion loves to push its message in threats and fear. That is not evangelism into the way of Jesus. It's an invitation to participate in what they've already been given, whether they believe it or not. Now, that awareness is important for their experience. I'm not downgrading that. But the posture of God is one of welcoming, and we are called to invite them, which leads us to end at this last title. Son of man, again, is extremely important. It's rooted in a powerful prophecy on the lips of David. So when, he, when Jesus calls himself the Son of Man, and then we go back and we read this passage of the Son of Man in the Old Testament, this means that now Christ has brought the revelation, we can read Christ synonymously into the phrase Son of Man. Because Son of Man equals Jesus, because Jesus said he, in fact, was the Son of Man. So let's look at the origin of that phrase, Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. And I'm going to go ahead and read the name Jesus synonymously in this so that we can feel the full implications. I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like a son of man, or suddenly Jesus, was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. Jesus was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and tongue should serve Jesus. Again, look at that last bit, 14. He was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom. And there's a reason for it. It is hinted at with the introductory phrase, so that, so that those of every people, nation, and language should what? Serve him. Now again, our no... I know that our theology wants to say so that every people, nation, and language should believe in facts about him and say the sinner's prayer. But that is not what it says. The goal is not to get someone to say a prayer and believe some facts and say, congratulations, you're on your way to heaven. Although I'm grateful for heaven and I look forward to being there, I'm not trying to take away from that. I am not saying I disbelieve in that. 
But I am saying that that is something that we've made the primary point, but that is not the primary point in any of the scriptures that speak of our salvation. What this passage says is the purpose of this, the purpose of Jesus being given dominion and authority is so that we would all learn to serve him. And he goes on to say about his kingdom that his dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. His kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Now, I want to end by us meditating for a moment on that powerful imagery that Jesus is the son of man. He is the one that ascends before the Ancient of Days, and the Ancient of Days gives him dominion and a kingdom that will last forever for the purpose that all the peoples of the earth would serve Jesus, the Son of Man. And this is a thought. It's not a dogmatic thought. I am neither writing an extra book of the Bible, nor am I working on the magnum opus of systematic theology. It's just a thought that I live with and that I would invite you to live with as well. Salvation is accepted by faith, but it is only experienced through service. Salvation is accepted by faith, so no Protestant should be getting ready to stone me, but it is experienced only through service. You can say a sinner's prayer and rejoice in our affirmation but it isn't until we start living the way of Jesus that we understand the power of the Holy Spirit and how much this way transforms our way of living and empowers us to discover who we really are. The way of Jesus is not an enemy that we're struggling so hard to yield to. That's not it at all. The way of Jesus is the natural rhythm for all his creation. And as we align ourselves with that way, we start living into the most natural way of living that we could possibly choose to live. Because it is the way that is encoded in our physical and spiritual DNA as creatures made in the image of God. So he shows up in the, in the flesh to display and to correct our misunderstanding of his way. You see, my friends, we discover Christ by being Christ. Reading books about Christ can help. Taking doctrinal classes about the history of Christology, that can help. But ultimately, we will not discover Christ until we begin following Christ so that we can be Christ to others. To be a Christian is to serve God by following the teachings of Jesus. We will not restore our world by proclaiming our convictions. We will restore the world as we obey our Lord. Remember, Jesus' call to discipleship was not just believe. What was it? Follow me. Not just believe, but follow me. As we follow Jesus, we will represent him to the world. And this is how we learn to be Christ. This is what's behind these great titles for Jesus. Following Jesus is not just believing things about him. His people, look, look at this. You remember John 1? Remember what we're told? He came to his own. Did his own know who he was? 
Yeah, we're coming to a close. But we need to sit with this for a minute. He came to his own, but they didn't know him. What were they given that should have equipped them to know him? It is the thing that we're told in most Christian discipleship is the most important thing about us. What did they have to allow them to begin to understand what God is like? Anybody want to make a guess? They had the scriptures. They had the sacred texts. Were the sacred texts enough to deliver them from misunderstanding their God and his heart? Were they? No. no. This is why Jesus came near to display. It was not, a, and when he came, they didn't recognize him. I am not saying that's the fault of the sacred text. I'm saying in humility as readers and interpreters, we need to recognize that we need to do more than just read about our faith. Yes, they had the sacred text, but they still imagined a warlike desert deity like all the surrounding gods in their time and place. They still took the sacred text, also took those images of the warlike desert deities, placed them on their understanding of God, and then mixed it together. So much so that when God stands in front of them, they don't recognize who he is. And it was not their atheism that did that. It was their religion. There was a day when a young, zealous person who loved God, would have been a man, chose to maybe join the, the order of Pharisees and to make himself an expert of the law and the text. And he did this out of love for God. And he learned the custom of his people and the way in which Yahweh prescribed to be worshiped. And he did this out of love for God. And then there was a day when Yahweh stood before him and he rejected him. Religious information is not enough, my friends. We need something more. That's why Jesus drew near and, and, and he took on flesh and he lived among us. The sacred texts were not enough to prevent them from misunderstanding his nature and his heart. He had to become incarnate to clear up that misunderstanding. I love St. Augustine's definition of a Christian. Worship team, you guys can go ahead and come up. We're getting ready to take communion. He says this, a Christian is a mind through which Christ thinks, a heart through which Christ loves, a voice through which Christ speaks, and a hand through which Christ helps. That's what it means to be a Christian. When we say we have been commissioned and called with a mission to change the experience and expression of Christianity in our generation, this insignificant part is what we mean. That it's not a belief system. It is a group of people falteringly and imperfectly seeking to follow Christ in such a way that they recognize the call of humans is to be Christ to one another. We don't want to be good Christians. We want to be skillful at following Jesus so that we can be Christ whenever and wherever he is needed. 
Would you stand? And as we come to the Lord's table with that thought in mind, have this simple prayer in your heart. Lord, what does it mean for me today in 2023 to be Christ toward those whom you've called me to serve? What does it mean for me not to believe Christ, but to be Christ as I express the life that is in me as the hope of glory?